Why Watch That is a podcast featuring the critic and referee who go head-to-head on a quest to discover the best movies and TV shows Hollywood has to offer. Expect the unexpected from the critic. While nothing gets past the ref. We do all the work. So you don't have to. Welcome Welcome to to Why Watch Watch That. So why watch that movie talk? It's time for a movie talk. Uh-oh, uh-oh. Ha-ha, <laughs> yeah! Now you might be thinking, wait, is the critic doing this alone? <laughs> no. no, of course not. But we do have a lot of movies in this talk for all of you. It is one, two, three, four, five of them. The first one we're going to start with is a first look. At Shazam! Bam. Now, you know, I'm doing it like it's... (laughs) I'm doing it like it's black exploitation, but it's not. But it has an exclamation point. Now, Shazam is in theaters right now. We all know it's directed by David F. Sandberg. It is written by Harry Gayton, story by him, and Darren Lemke. It is based on the DC Comics characters. It stars Zachary Levi in the title role. Mark Strong is there, my boy. Asher Angel, Jack Dylan Grazer, and Jimon Hansu has come back to us. Hey, Jimon. <laughs> he's, he's going between Marvel and... <laughs> <laughs> and a whole bunch of other people. So tell us, tell us, Ref, what's the deal with Shazam? Oh, boy. So you have seen all the trailers out there. It is W... It's WB, excuse me. It is... Uh, Warner Brothers DC comic, Comics follow-up superhero film since Aquaman, which was a huge success. And they're hoping that Shazam as well is a huge success. Well, first, let's go through the plot before we say if it is or not according to my experience. We have a kid. He is... Um, this poor Billy Batson. He is an orphan. Golly gee. Mm. He, his mother somehow, I won't give away what happened, but they got split up when he was very, very young. So he's been hopping from house to house to house, um, foster home to foster home, really in search of his mother. Can't find her. It's horrible. Well, he comes to a last straw. And what happens is it lands him in the house of the Milans. Now the Milans... Mr. and Mrs. Milan were foster parents themselves, and they are last resort foster home in which they take in the worst of the worst, but they love these kids so much. They were foster kids themselves. But Billy isn't having a good transition there. However, he does come across some really interesting uh, characters named Freddie Freeman, played by Jack Dylan Grazer. Freddie, who is crippled a little bit tries to befriend billy as best as he can but billy has one thing on his mind i need to get out of here and i need to find my mother i'm looking for her. but let's pause because at the beginning of the movie we see another child around billy's age 12 years old he's riding in a car it's the 1970s he's in the car with his father and his brother where are they going it's dark what are they doing As they're in the car, you see the family dynamic is dark. 
The father is belittling this child who sits in the back seat. The brother joins in with the father and belittles the child. But in a moment, this child has a supernatural experience. And zoop! He is zapped into this very strange chasm of a world and greeted by the wizard, played by Jimon Hansu. Oh, I'm scared. Now, yeah, I, well, I was too because I'm like, what is happening here? <laughs> and as he's walking toward the wizard, the wizard and his staff, he says to the child, Are you worthy? Are you pure of heart? Because I need to transfer all of my powers to you because I'm the last remaining soul of this entity of people. Mm. And the seven deadly sins who manifest themselves as demons are about to overpower me. Now the question is, does this child pass the wizard's test? Or does he instead succumb, like every other person before him, to the seven deadly sins? Now, fast forward back to Billy in present time. What are we doing here? Yep, that's what the movie does. Wow. Billy, who just going through school, gets roughed up by the boys, has a similar experience. He too meets the wizard. So you kind of know what happened to the first kid if the, if the, first, if the wizard didn't find a, a vessel. He meets Billy, and the, the bottom line is the wizard's dying because... Prior to Billy's arrival in this mysterious world, that child grew up to be a very disturbed man, played by Mark Strong, Dr. Thaddeus Savannah. <laughs> and he came and got his seven deadly sins and is now roaming the earth, trying to rule it. And so the wizard has only one hope. It's Billy, the last of the last hopes. Is he worthy? Doesn't matter. Let's transfer the power. And Billy finds himself into the body of a superhero who's about mid-30s. <laughs> this 14-year-old is a mid-30s manifestation of the greatest superheroes of all time. Arguably stronger than Superman, arguably str faster than uh, Flash, arguably uh, more strong and beautiful and wonderful than Hercules. All of it all together played in the form of Zachary Levy. <laughs> now, as Billy is wading through these new superpowers, remember, he's a 14-year-old kid, and he's going through realizing the fact that he can hold a bus in the air with a finger, he can fly, he can do all sorts of things. Now, the question is, does that invite certain types of people? What kind of fame does he gather from that what and what kind of attention does he gather from a super villain mm. as the movie goes through you see that billy does have to make a decision is he going to fulfill the, his destiny and step into the shoes of all the superheroes before him and they do reference superman and batman in the movie so you can sniff what's going on here or does he simply succumb to the seven deadly sins well you're gonna have to watch the movie to find out that's the gist of what happened. Wow. Mm. All of that to say, <laughs> if you were to take Big, the movie, mesh it with a very PG-13 Deadpool, and mesh it with an 80s coming-to-age movie, 
you get Shazam, but not that good. <laughs> <laughs> it was predictable. It was, uh, I'm sorry, Mark Strong's character's storyline wasn't as as interesting as Billy's storyline, which, by the way, gets really dark. I mean, something happens where he discovers, I'll just say, what he's been looking for, and it's dark. Hmm. I would say this. If you are itching like you have never itched before to see another DC comic movie because you're tired of the Marvels taking over the world and you just want to go see it immediately, then maybe Shazam's for you. Is it trying to be funny? Yes, of course it is. Is it trying to be its own Deadpool? Yes, it's trying to do that. Is it as funny? No, it's not. But I will tell you this. If you are preparing yourself for Avengers Endgame and you just need a fix before then, I say proceed with caution. Hmm. Wow. That's what I have to say about that. But you got a chance to see some sneak peeks and we want to get into that. You got to see the new movie called The Man Who Killed Don Quixote. Hmm. Hmm. Now, I didn't know much about this. It's I don't know if it's going to be available for everyone or not. It's kind of uh, wishy-washy, but you're going to tell everybody about that. The Man Who Killed Don Quixote is directed by the very familiar uh, Terry Gilliam, who you've known for, you know, various things perhaps it's starring not a foreign cast meaning we do know some of these people we don't know everybody but adam driver namely which really gets me going as well as jonathan price you got uh stellan skarsgård coming in through there along with other people do tell us what this is about i tried to be get started i didn't quite make it through huh yeah uh well <laughs> In this experience of a film, let's say that. Uh, yeah, it's from Terry Gilliam, director of Time Bandits and Brazil, among other crazy films after all. Okay, so in this, we got Adam Driver. He plays a director named Toby, who's just the kind of guy you think he is. Let's just say that he's been in the business for a while. Now, from the start, we see that Toby's in the midst of creating a not-so-inspiring commercial that's based on, what do you think? Don Quixote. But... Toby seems content to just go through the motions. And Toby has a boss to deal with, of course, who's played by Stellan Skarsgård. He also has to deal with the boss's wife. <laughs> now, this isn't the first time that Toby has adapted Don Quixote. No, no. You see, when he was a film student, Toby made a movie called, what do you think? The Man Who Killed Don Quixote. And at that time, Toby actually had a zest for life and for filmmaking. So when Toby rewatches it, old memories come flooding back. He remembers when he met his Don Quixote in the form of an old Spanish shoemaker named Javier, who's played by Jonathan Price. And he remembers a certain woman named Angelica, whom he met and cast in the film. And so when things start to get heated for Toby on set for certain reasons, he escapes his looming troubles by going back to the small town where he filmed his student movie. However, when he gets there, he has to deal with the negative impacts that he and his film have had on a certain family. And when he sees Javier again, it's clear that Javier never left the role of Don Quixote behind because Javier now believes that he really is Quixote. He's so easy. And he believes that Toby's actually his long lost squire, Sancho Panza. Oh boy. 
And so as a result of this belief and as a result of Toby's actions catching up with him in regard to his boss and his boss's wife, along with a terrible accident that occurred, Javier, in a burst of chivalry, comes to Toby's rescue, which leads to quite the sticky situation for both of them. Javier and Toby find themselves on the run. Now, of course, along the way, Toby tries to relieve Javier of his delusions. However, by the end, they find themselves in a crazy situation, both physically and mentally, which is somehow tied to Toby's current film and which is worthy of this film's source material. It's certainly an out there experience as everyone gets sucked into the madness of Quixote. Plus, of course, there are touches of romance throughout Dulcinea, anybody? Which I won't give away. And so here's the question. Is any of this real? Or does that not matter much? Well, one thing's for sure. Don Quixote will never die. Now look. Let's start with this, Ref. This is a film with a past, shall we say? Uh-huh. And by that, I mean this. The man who killed Don Quixote took director and co-writer Terry Gilliam 25 years to complete. Good gracious. Yeah. And the film actually references just that during its opening credits. I mean, it took so long, in fact, that there's a documentary about the challenges of making it, which is called Lost in La Mancha, and that was released in 2002. And so the question is, does this film's tortured path to theaters result in a torturous experience for moviegoers? Well, let's start with this. Gilliam's work is what I imagine Baz Luhrmann, director of Moulin Rouge and Romeo and Juliet, finds inspiring. It's like one day Baz decided to use what Gilliam does in a more frenetic fashion. Plus, it's important to note that Gilliam has a sense of humor about filmmaking and a fascination with the limits of imagination. As a result, he always dives into the absurdities of his stories. I mean, just look at some of the camera work and listen to the music. There's even a moment when Adam Driver quite literally wipes the subtitles off of the screen. And so, watching the man who killed Don Quixote makes you feel like you're stumbling along with Gilliam and his characters through a story that's over two hours long. And yes, it feels that long. It's like watching Gilliam, his committed cast, and his other collaborators enjoy an inside joke, but will audiences be in on that joke too? Well, I'll tell you this. The idea of satirizing the movie business via Don Quixote, it's not a bad one. However, both Gilliam and Quixote are acquired tastes. So if you've acquired at least one of those tastes, or if an adventurous mess of absurdity is your thing, then the man who killed Don Quixote might work somewhat for you. And look, you don't even need to see it in the theater. For me, though, while I was watching it, for some reason, I kept wishing that I was watching The Princess Bride instead. Wow. And I suspect that most people would see this and say out loud, what in the world is this and why am I watching it? Well, you saw another sneak peek of the new movie, Master Z. Is it IP or IP? IP. Mm-hmm. IP Man Legacy, which is coming out on the 12th as of taping. Directed by Wu Ping Yang. Now, he did some stunt work for Kill Bill 2. Mm. And did a lot of stunt work, actually. Not stunt, he's coordinator, stunt coordinator. Mm-hmm. Edmund Wong did this, this screenplay, as well as uh, Tylee Chan. And it has some familiar folks. Uh, Michelle Yong, David Barista. Um, Batista, not a barista. <laughs> and uh, 
Jin Zhang, along with other people that I'm sure the critic will uh, go through. Now, this isn't this is a, a series of movies, if I'm not mistaken, and you were pretty excited to see what this one was about, if I understand it correctly. Yes, that's right. And let's start with uh, who Ip Man was. In case you don't already know, Ip Man was a grandmaster of Wing Chun, which is a style of Chinese Kung Fu, and he was Bruce Lee's teacher. Yeah, so Ip Man was a real man who taught the real Bruce Lee, which means that the Ip Man film series, including the first three Ip Man films, which, by the way, you can watch right now on Netflix, it's biographical in nature, loosely biographical. And despite its astonishingly obvious narrative and dramatic clunkiness and penchant for the completely ridiculous, especially when British and American actors, if you can call them that, appear, including Mike Tyson, this film series can at times be touching and even infuriating in a manipulative yet effective way. But don't let any of that fool you because it's really about the joy of kicking butt. And now let's talk about Master Z, Ip Man Legacy. It's the fourth film in this series and it serves as a sequel to Ip Man 3 and it's the first, uh, the first official spinoff of the series. Okay, so in this film, the focus isn't on Ip Man who will return at Ip Man 4. <laughs> Instead, it's on Chung Tin Chi, played by Max Young, a former Wing Chun master, and Rickshaw Puller, who was defeated by Master Ip in Ip Man 3. Now, at the start of Master Z, Tin Chi's trying to make a life for himself and his young son in Hong Kong. But after he renounces the mercenary life, all he's left with is his little store to make ends meet. And the best he can hope for is being able to take his uh, son out for dinner at a fancy restaurant that's owned by an American who's played by Guardians of the Galaxy's Dave Bautista. So let's just say that Tin Chi's taking a fall from grace with his son while still admiring him has no trouble pointing out. However, living the peaceful life doesn't last long for Tin Chi because he's sucked back into a life of violence after he encounters a drug addict named Nana who owes money to a local gang leader named Kit. And as a result, Tin Chi finds himself helping Nana along with her friend Julia escape Kit, which means that Tin Chi's made himself and his son vulnerable to Kit's retaliation. But will Tin Chi take Kit the wrath lying down? Huh, of course not. And so the back and forth between Tin Chi and Kit leads to problems for both men. Tin Chi loses his store and has to find work in a bar that's owned by Julia's brother. And Kit's behavior necessitates the involvement of his sister Quan, played by Michelle Yeoh, who's the head of a criminal syndicate that wants to become legit. So Quan wants her brother to behave himself for the good of the family business. And on top of that, she actually takes a liking to Tin Chi. Now this doesn't sit well with Kit, who as a result finds a way to continue selling drugs via a surprising source. And so the repercussions of all of this lead to fighting and killing and the bribing of cops and corruptions and the like. But in the end, who cares about the story, everybody? It's the fights that have to count. So let's get to them in my review. First, though, let me tell y'all something about the Man series overall. This stuff is so ridiculous. It's so ridiculous. I mean, I, it's so ridiculous I can't help but be entertained. <laughs> I just find it so entertaining. And some of the acting, oh, I mean, it would make milk curdle. And yet I still watch it. I can't stop. And the writing, my goodness, the writing. But I just can't resist. And the biggest reason why 
is that the central characters in this series, from Ip Man to Ten Chi in the spinoff, are the exact opposite of over the top. In contrast to much of what surrounds them, they're calm, humble, and contemplative. And man, can they kick the living you-know-what out of the bad guys. So, if you're a fan of martial arts films, then you have to watch this series. You just have to. Go to Netflix and start. And if you make it through Ip Man 1, 2, and 3, then you can consider watching Master Z. However, I do have to say that Master Z is the least entertaining film so far. For one, the subtitles were hard to read. And for two, even with all of the lovable and glaring flaws of the previous films in this series, in Master Z, you can feel the loss of Wilson Yip, who for the first time isn't the director, and of Donnie Yen, who plays Ip Man, and who's known to improvise some of his own action choreography. You see, this time, as the ref said, the directing duties went to Yuen Wu-Ping, who, yeah, he was involved in It Man 3. He did the action choreography there. He also directed that Crouching Tiger sequel that we all hope to forget. Now, as far as a little bit of acting on display here, Dave Bautista manages to not completely embarrass himself, and Michelle Yeoh is always good. It was a lot of fun to see her fight again in what was this film's best sequence by far. Furthermore, Max Zhang proves yet again that he's an astonishingly good martial artist, which is all that's necessary for him to play Tin Chi. So if you decide to watch this, keep in mind that Master Z, along with the other films of the fan series, isn't trying for the lyricism of a film like The Grand Master, which is an unrelated movie that's also about Ip Man and which also features Max Zhang. Also keep in mind that the fights in Master Z don't reach the level of what has come to be expected from this series until the final half hour or so. Before then, they were good, but not excellent. The camera shots and editing just weren't quite right. And finally, keep in mind that Ip Man 4 should be coming to the States at some point in the future, but for now, it's up to Master Z with its echoes of Ip Man to tide you over until then. We have another sneak peek, Teen Spirit, which is coming out the same day, directed by Max Miela, also written by him, starring namely L. Fanning. Yeah. And in Max Minghella's directorial debut, Violet, played by Elle Fanning, is a shy 17-year-old who desperately wants to become a singer. But at the moment, she lives on the Isle of Wight with her mother. They live on a small farm. <laughs> so Violet does what you'd expect a quiet teenager to do in a small town. It's nothing exciting. However, things are about to change for Violet because despite her aloofness, she regularly performs at a local bar's open mic night. And one night, former opera star Vlad is there to hear her. Now, this isn't as exciting as it may sound because Vlad is down and out, so much so that Violet rightly wants nothing to do with him. However, after Violet finds out about auditions for Teen Spirit, which is a hit televised singing competition, she finds that she needs Vlad's help for obvious and not so obvious reasons. But does Vlad have what it takes to help Violet overcome her fears and reservations to become a star? Also, will Violet be able to help Vlad in return? In addition, how will Violet's mom react to all of this? After all, Violet's father's gone and the money they make waitressing is nowhere near enough. Plus, just how far will Violet's talent take her and how will that affect who she is and will become. So look, as you can probably tell, the tale that writer-director Max Minghella, who currently stars in The Handmaid's Tale, by the way, 
The tale he spun is a very familiar one. From Cinderella to A Star is Born, the story of someone who's naive being plucked out of obscurity to somehow make it big in some way keeps being told. Now, why is this the case? Well, because who doesn't like to watch someone overcome seemingly insurmountable obstacles to find success? It's what everybody dreams about, right? However, each time this story is transmuted into something that's appropriate for the times, we still must consider whether the latest iteration brings enough to the theme to warrant existence. So what does that mean for King Spirit? Well, let's start with this, aesthetically. It's like what an indie film would be if it occasionally borrowed from music videos. And the lighting is very instructive on that count. It all seems very naturalistic, which means that the scenes are lit to mimic how you would see things if you were there. It almost seems like uh, they simply use the light that was available to them, whether indoors or outdoors. Indoors, there's plenty of shadow, along with neon lights for the performance sequences. Outdoors, uh, the light hits like uh, it would if it were an overcast day. So this isn't some sort of high-gloss, big-budget affair. It's a lower-budget, more intimate approximation of that, which I thought was smart. Now, as far as the acting goes, Zlatko Burch and Agnieszka Grochowska as Vlad and Violet's mother each get the job done. Zlatko, who's gruff yet tender, is perfectly believable as a man who once had it all but is now in the throes of alcoholism. And Agnieszka conveys the tough concern of any mother who's struggling to make ends meet. But what about Elle, right? Well, she once again proves that she can play the aloof loner in her sleep. And her singing is at least as good as many of these so-called music stars nowadays. However, it seems that Max Minghella has shied away from plumbing the depths of their characters and situations in his script. You see, while his script hints at myriad problems, and we can see that there's a lot going on underneath the surface, almost all of it is hidden away, which results in a rather shallow affair. Now look, this isn't to say that Teen Spirit is bad, because actually, it's not a terrible way to pass the time. However, instead of pushing himself to burst through the confines of an overly familiar genre, Minghella has settled for much more obvious devices. And in that way, Teen Spirit echoes most, though not all, of the pop music in its soundtrack. It's fine in the moment, but once it's over, not much stays with you. Okay, let's end this long movie talk <laughs> with finally Dogman. Mm. Mm. I was gonna go see this, but or not go and see it, but watch a screening link because the director is Matteo Garone. He is from Italy and he has directed one of my favorite series that I didn't finish, Gamora. Mm. <laughs> yes. It is written by about nine people. <laughs> I'm not going to name <laughs> them all. I will just say Matteo is one of the folks who did the story and the screenplay along with a lot of other people. I do not know this cast well, so let's get into the story and review. Yeah. Um, so Marcello, played by Marcello Fonte, is a mild-mannered soul who's not the biggest of guys. And at the very beginning of this film, we see him attempt to wash and dry a dog. But this dog is having none of it. All right, none of it. Even still, Marcello is very patient and very cautious. He almost dances around the dog to get the job done and avoid being hurt. He's the dog man, after all. And in addition to grooming dogs, not only for a living at his humble salon, but also because he loves them, he cherishes every bit of time he can get with his young daughter, Alita. However, 
Despite his affection for dogs and for his daughter, and despite his kind-hearted nature, he lives in a precarious situation. Aggressive dogs can't even come close to the threat posed by his other profession, because shockingly, Marcello is a drug dealer. Yes, to make ends meet, Marcello sells cocaine. But why would such a man do such a thing? Well, in his seaside, <laughs> well, in his seaside Italian village, poverty is a constant and opportunity is in short supply. So the options aren't vast. However, as a result of his criminal exploits, Marcello has to contend with Simone, a drug-addicted bully who keeps Marcello's neighborhood on edge. Marcello has to dance to an entirely different tune to stay ahead of him. And so, Marcello has no choice but to go along with Simone's criminal schemes in order to stay safe. But eventually, even Marcello is pushed too far by Simone, who's played by Eduardo Pesce. Because Simone forces Marcello into an unfortunate situation, leaving Marcello's reputation in shambles. And as a result of that and more, this quiet and gentle man finally decides to stand up for himself and reclaim his dignity via the cruel hand of vengeance. But as is typically the case, vengeance from unexpected and unintended consequences. Now, first of all, keep in mind, as you said, Ref, Dogman was directed and co-written by Matteo Garone, who was the, the, the director and co-writer of the film version of Gamora, which preceded the TV show. But while I thought the movie version of Gamora was pretty good, I like the show much better because it has a more consistent pulse. However, from the beginning of Dogman, Garone and his co-writers, along with everybody else, let you know that even in the ordinary moments, even in the tender moments, the threat of danger is not far away. After all, Marcello constantly plays with fire from his testy opening exchange with that dog to the echoes of that opening moment in his exchanges with Simone. So the stakes are way up here without being overdone. In addition, Dogman is nicely paced and edited with appropriate momentum, especially during its first half and is punctuated by kinetic exchanges and sequences, resulting in a film that has a realistic feel without being dull. It draws you in, and the camera's used effectively via close-ups and medium shots with a few wide shots sprinkled in. Now, when it comes to the performances, this really is Marcello Fonte's movie. And as the lead character, he has the right look and the right energy. He's so far from the typical protagonist and he's interesting to watch. Look, I'll put it this way. If he weren't an actor and if Hollywood decided to make a movie about him, they'd cast a scrawnier version of a pre-Scarface Al Pacino. Plus, Marcello's exchanges with the dogs are priceless, which is best exemplified in a scene when he comes to a particular dog's aid. I was with him all the way and I cared about his welfare. And so if you're in the States, and you're missing the TV version of Gamora, which is in limbo because of the Weinstein mess. Dogman, yeah, uh huh. Dogman will help to fill a little, a little bit, a little bit of that void. However, Dogman and Gamora—they're not the same, which is a good thing because Dogman is strong enough on its own. It's good, clean, straightforward storytelling. And while the overall arc of its narrative could be smoother, and while it does lose a little bit of steam in the end, it should work for more than just fans of Gamora. It should work for anyone who's interested in uncomplicated crime dramas that turn brutal. Plus, 
reading the subtitles won't interfere with your ability to experience it in any way. All right. We're going to wrap up this long movie talk with the fact that there are a lot of movies out. (laughs) (laughs) And you have a lot of choices. So please, please stay locked here at Why Watch That. We will keep you in the know. Thanks for listening. For additional resources, visit whywatchthat.com. Good idea. And we'd love to hear from you. So go ahead and leave comments, feedback, and you can rate us on iTunes. We'll see you next week. See you.